whether they're Christian or not, has trouble making decisions. Different people have different ways of approaching decision making, but in the end, I think all of us struggle with it. And as I think about it, I reckon there are at least six different factors that feed into that problem. For one thing, decisions are unavoidable. There's just kind of no way around it. But like, whatever you do, you're going to make decisions. You're going to make them and you're going to keep on making them. You've made dozens of decisions today already. Whether to get up, what to wear, who to sit next to. You could have rolled over and gone back to sleep, I suppose. But that would be a decision as well, wouldn't it? In fact, even when you decide to do nothing at all, you're still deciding. Decisions are just unavoidable. But that makes things tricky because our choices have consequences for us, for our family and friends, and for everyone else who could be affected by them. And some of the consequences are fairly predictable. If I go to bed late tonight, I'll probably wake up tired tomorrow. I'll be grumpy. I won't be able to pay attention in my seminar. But who knows whether choosing engineering over science will make any difference to my life? What if, you know, what difference, how do I know what difference it will make if I marry Jane instead of Jill? Or Jack instead of John? Lots of the consequences, you, you just don't know. And then thirdly, we're actually responsible for the decisions that we make. We're responsible to our friends, to our families, and of course to God. Sometimes I think it would be nice if we could make decisions and we weren't responsible to God for them. And God didn't hold them to account. That's basically the way most of our society operates. I can just choose what to do and no one holds me accountable. If God doesn't assess our decisions, then my decisions actually don't matter. I could be totally selfish and cruel, or I could be the most loving and generous guy in the world, and actually it makes no difference. The outcome is identical either way, if God doesn't assess my decisions. That's actually a good thing that God judges our decisions, that we're responsible for them, but it can kind of wait on you a bit, can't it? What if, what if I make the wrong decision? What if I stuff it up? And if all that wasn't hard enough, if that wasn't anxiety-inducing enough, well, we actually face some major difficulties when it comes to making good decisions because we are severely, severely limited. For one thing, we're not omniscient. We don't know everything. We don't know all the factors that feed into our decisions. We don't know all the consequences that might come out of them. I mean, imagine this, for example. You're heading off to uni one day, uh, and before you go, you're a little bit hungry. So you think, well, I, you know, there's a little fruit bowl here, and I've got a choice between an apple or an orange that I could eat. What one are you going to choose? Well, who cares? It doesn't matter. Apple or an orange? I don't know. But you choose the orange. Because you had an orange yesterday, but it was really good, and it's hard to get with oranges, and so you thought you'd have another one. But the orange takes a little longer to eat because you know you kind of got to cut it up and then you sort of all juicy at the end of it, and you've got to clean yourself up before you head out. And so you leave the house 30 seconds later than if you'd eaten an apple. Which means that you are in exactly the right spot, or the wrong spot. So you hit by a car on your way to uni, and you're paralyzed for the rest of your life because you ate an orange instead of an apple. You thought that was an irrelevant decision. It turned out to be one of the biggest decisions of your life. But how could you have ever known? You're not omniscient. You start to think that. You start getting a bit anxious, don't you? Be careful about the fruit that I'm getting. <laughs> but if you chose the apple, you might have been 30 seconds earlier and been in exactly the right spot to be hit by a car and paralyzed. How do you know? We're not omniscient. And we're not omnipotent. Even if we knew the right decision, we're often powerless to actually do it. 
Sometimes circumstances conspire against us. We get sick or the public transport workers go on strike, so I can't get where I need to get. Sometimes we defeat ourselves. I know that I need to study to pass the exam, but somehow I can't do it. And there I am on YouTube watching cat videos again, and I'm into my second hour of cat videos. And I should have been studying, and I hate myself, and... Oh. Technically, I could log off Facebook. I could turn off YouTube, but somehow I can't seem to find the willpower. I just lack the power to do what needs to be done. We're severely limited in our ability to know what's right and even to do it, to carry out good choices. And on top of that, we actually live in a society where our choices are almost unlimited. <coughs> A couple hundred years ago, most women would never have asked, what job should I do? It wasn't even a relevant question. You'd just be looking after the kids at home. Most blokes wouldn't be asking what job they should do either. They were just going to do what Dad did. Dad was a coal miner, I'll be a coal miner. But you? Well, you've got limitless opportunities, don't you? You can choose to do any number of things. 200 years ago, there was no such thing as toothpaste. But now you can get paralyzed in front of the toothpaste selection in the shops. What am I going to choose? Do I, do I choose lightning or advanced lightning? Or advanced lightning with harder control? Do I choose sparkling minty gel? Or cavity protection? Or cavity protection with sparkling minty gel? Do I choose stripes or normal? Do I choose charcoal or lemon and aloe vera? Or blue minty gel? I don't know. I know. I haven't even got the toothbrushes. <laughs> We've got an almost unlimited choice, and that makes life hard. Now, there are all problems that everyone faces with decision making, but if you're a Christian, there's another one sort of waiting on you, isn't there? How do I know what God wants me to do? Should I be listening for a still small voice? Or should I be waiting for God to give me some kind of inner impression? And if I did get some kind of voice or impression, how would I know that it was God? And not just my head or Satan or something. Some people say, you'll just know. But how? How do I just know? You'll just know. What should I do? Should I look for open doors? But there are so many open doors, that's the problem. What about circumstances indicating which way I should go? But that's so ambiguous as well. Imagine I'm trying to decide on what I should study at uni, and everywhere I go I see signs for physiotherapists. What does that mean? Does it mean, is God saying to me, come on, dude, get the hint, become a physiotherapist? Or is it God saying, dude, Get the hint. There's so many physiotherapists, we don't need another one. <laughs> I don't know. It's completely ambiguous. Over this week, we want to explore how God helps us to navigate life. But we don't want to do it by just sort of relying on traditions or old wives' tales about guidance that have accumulated over the years. We want to actually dig into the Bible and see what God says about it himself. And when you start to do that, you discover that right through the Bible, from beginning to end, God does talk an awful lot about guidance. Take Psalm 23, for instance. The Lord is my shepherd. What does it mean for the Lord to be our shepherd? Well, at least part of it is that he guides us. In fact, that's what we've seen in the next few verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's the language of guidance, isn't it? It's saying that God will guide me through life. Jesus himself picks up that language in John 10. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he is brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they'll never follow a stranger, in fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. It's the language of guidance and unity. The Bible is shot through with the language of guidance. But in some ways, that just kind of makes it worse, doesn't it? Because I want God to guide me, but if I'm honest, I don't really feel like he is. I want him to guide me, I pray for him to guide me, but nothing special seems to happen. And yet other Christians keep banging on as though God has spoken to them or prompted them to say something or do something specifically. And they talk as though they feel God guiding them day by day, moment by moment, and they sound so spiritual, and I feel so unspiritual. They seem to have this direct kind of conversation with God, and it hasn't really happened to me. What am I doing wrong? Now, it makes me worried, and it makes me anxious, and in my anxiety, I, I become vulnerable to all sorts of silly and unbiblical ideas about how God governs. Perhaps I, I find myself experiencing what the psychologists call cognitive dissonance. I hold this one belief that God guides me, but that conflicts with my experience. I'm not getting any still small voice. And so I try to resolve the tension, either by rejecting the Bible, saying God doesn't intend to guide me, or more likely by concluding that I'm somehow doing it wrong. If I just had the right technique, if I could just kind of tune in to God's signal, then it will work. Maybe I'm too simple, maybe I'm not prayerful enough, maybe I haven't got the right technique. And so finally we get to the big question. How does God guide? Over this talk and the next, I want to put together a series of propositions uh, so that we can build up a clear picture of God's guidance. So here's the first proposition. <coughs> Proposition one that God in his sovereignty uses everything to guide his people. So let me try and explain that a bit more. Uh, when you look through the Bible for guidance words like, well, guide, but also instruct, lead, call, direct, God's will, God's plan, you discover that they're actually used in two different ways. The first way is to speak about God's conscious instruction choice. So uh, take Acts chapter 16, verse 9 for us. Uh, you might want to look these up. We'll do a bit of Bible flipping today and over the next few nights. Uh, so if you're not a quick Bible flipper, don't worry, you can just listen. But um, if you are, this is your chance. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. I've waffled on enough so that you should be able to look it up by now. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to That's pretty clear, conscious guidance, isn't it? Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his way. Now, if God is teaching, that's got to be about conscious instruction, doesn't it? Things that we can follow and do. So there's just a couple out of dozens of examples of God using conscious instruction to guide people. There's lots more. But there's a second category as well. A whole range of cases where, without my knowledge, God guides me by his sovereign control of everything. Not by receiving conscious commands, but just unconsciously by being part of his sovereign plan. So flip over to James chapter 4 for a moment. James chapter 4, verse 13. This is James uh, talking to some of the businessmen in the church. James chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. 
Instead, you want to say, if it's the Lord's will, will he ever do this or that? What is he saying? He's saying that God will guide you. How? By telling you what to do. No, actually, the whole point that James is making is you don't know what will happen. You don't know if God intends you to head off to Jerusalem to do business, to make a stack of money. You don't know what God's will is. You might get sick. You might get beaten by thieves. You might get trampled by a man donkey on the way. You just don't know how things are going to pan out. But that means we always have to say, if it is the Lord's will, because ultimately what happens where we end up, where we're led, depends not on our plans, but on God's. Come with me to Proverbs chapter 16. Easy to find Proverbs. You just open to the middle of your Bible and you hit Psalms, and then you go to the right a little bit. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. See what it's saying? You can do all the planning you like, but God will determine where you go. I said last night that I, uh, on Tuesday nights, I head off to study German at Scotch College, right in Swanbourne train station. So a few weeks ago, uh, I had come up with a brilliant plan. I decided I'd do some shopping in Subiaco, I'd eat my dinner there, and then I'd catch the train from Subi through to Swanbourne. I had it all planned out perfectly down to the minute. Excellent work by me. And then there was some kind of incident at Westley Little train station, and the whole Fremantle line got shut down for two hours. In my heart, I planned my course, but the Lord determined my steps. Now we tend to notice that when our plans don't align with God's, but actually it's always true. It's just that sometimes we do what God was already planning. We saw the same thing this morning, didn't we, when we looked at the life of Joseph in our seminar groups. Did God guide Joseph's life? Well, yeah, absolutely. How? Well, kind of through everything, really. Through cheesing off his brothers, through getting chucked down a well, through getting sold off to some additional lights, ending up in Egypt, ending up in Potiphar's house. goes on and on. God used every little detail to get Joseph exactly where he wanted him. And Joseph could see that in retrospect, but there's no indication that he knew that at the time. God just that including through the sinful actions of others, to get Joseph where he wanted him, precisely where he wanted him, without telling Joseph about it at all. So, proposition two. Oh, Conscious cooperation in order to guide us. God doesn't need to tell me what He wants me to do in order to get me to do it. He's able to tell me, of course, but He doesn't need to. God didn't need to speak to me with an audible voice or some kind of impression in my head saying, Ben, Ben, don't get on the train from Sudia. No, He didn't give me an impression about it at all. He didn't send a prophet, he didn't arrange a series of signs, he just provided an incident at Westleyville train station and meant that the train wasn't running. God didn't want me to get on the train. How do I know? Because I didn't. God wants you at the year conference. How do I know? Because you didn't. God is sovereign. Do you think you'd be here if God didn't want you to be here? Paul talks about God's sovereignty in Romans 8, where he pulls together the thinking that we've seen throughout the Bible. You can have a look at verse 28 there. Come, come with me to Romans 8, because we'll spend a bit of time in there now. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And as God is sovereign over everything, he's working all things, all things for the good of those who love him. No matter how big or small, easy or hard, good or evil, God intends and uses all of them for your good. Now that's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? When a hair falls from your head, God intended it. When a sparrow falls from the sky, or your brothers sell you into slavery, God intended it. He's not looking on helplessly. He's not sort of scrabbling to kind of pick up the pieces. Like, oh no, I didn't see that coming. What am I going to do now? No. Even Satan only does what God purposes him to do. Yes, Satan's evil. Yes, he's opposed to God, but he's not independent. He's not able to do something that God doesn't want him to do. If God wanted to stop Satan, he'd stop him like that. And he will. But God is sovereign. Many people have made decisions that have affected our lives, where we live, what school we went to, who we made friends with, what country we're in. Some of them have made or will make appalling evil decisions that will affect our lives in terrible ways. And yet God is sovereign over all of them. Now none of this is to deny the very real existence of evil. Now there is genuine evil. But while others might intend things for evil, God loves us, and he always intends the evil of others to work out for the good of those who love him. Our culture thinks of good as being whatever gives me the most pleasure right now, but what is the good that God is working for us? Well, Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the good that God intends for us, that we be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And that's a brilliant outcome, isn't it? I mean, imagine if you were actually like Jesus. If you were gracious and generous and compassionate and wise and insightful and kind all the time, Wow, you'd be awesome. I'd love to hang out with you if you were like that. Some of you are becoming like that. Praise God. That's an awesome outcome. But just because God is working all things for your good, to make you like Christ, that doesn't mean that life will always feel fantastic now. Life didn't always feel fantastic for Jesus. Coming like Christ is not easy. It involves hard things. It involves experiencing the evil of others, of learning to trust God in the midst of it. Like we saw last night, God's plan for us involves suffering and persecution. Perhaps it's a little like a coach training an athlete, pushing us to go beyond what we thought we were capable of to become more like Jesus than we ever imagined. And the training involves suffering. But the result will be glory. There is a danger in talking like this. Uh, we could sort of slip back into thinking that actually it's all about us. It all revolves around us. And Jesus is my sort of life coach that I've employed to, uh, you know, really beef me up, make me bit more sort of Hugh Jackman, a um, bit, bit more Wolverine. He's there to make sure that my life turns out great. <coughs> Actually, like we saw last night, the universe and God's plan doesn't revolve around me. It revolves around Jesus. Which is what Paul actually says here, isn't it? Verse 30. Why is God doing all this? Why is he 
points to the likeness of Jesus? Well, verse 30, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's plan is fundamentally about Jesus enjoying us forever. But the cool thing is, if Jesus gets to enjoy us forever, it means we get to enjoy him forever. The universe doesn't revolve around me, but because it revolves around Jesus, it means maximal joy for me if I willingly revolve around him too. Ironically, the best possible outcome for me is that it not be all about me. And God will do it. Nothing is going to stop you. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's just this unbreakable chain. God has decided to make us like Christ. And he will make us like Christ. Ultimately, by glorifying us, bringing us before his throne on the last day, clothed in Christ's righteousness, completely conformed to his likeness. And not by the skin of our teeth, not with any sort of uncertainty or doubt about it, but with absolute 100% certainty. God will do it. And God has proven it. He's proven it through the crucifixion of Jesus. See it there in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how do we not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, if the most evil event in human history, the murder of the Son of God, was actually deliberately planned before the creation of the world by God for our good, then what could possibly be outside his control? What evil could be outside his control if he can use the greatest evil? Intend the greatest evil for our Lord. After all, he's not going to give his son for us and then withhold something else. He's not going to be in two minds about, oh, I really wonder whether I should do good to them or not. No, God always does good to us, those who love him. The cross actually proves that God is in total, total sovereign control of history. He'd been planning that from before the creation of the world. So he can do everything for our good. Even the terrible evil things that happen, God is intending for good. And the cross proves that he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. So not only can he do everything for our good, he will do it for our good. We sometimes get anxious about God's sovereignty because we worry that it implies that our choices aren't real choices. But that's not what it means. The brothers who sold Joseph and the people who crucified Jesus, they made real choices. They did what they wanted to do. And yet their free choices accomplished exactly what God intended. Now that's hard to understand, isn't it? How does that all work? It's like trying to work out how light works as a wave and a particle at the same time. I have no idea. I don't think anyone does. And yet the evidence is clear. God's sovereignty and our responsibility, they're not incompatible. And God's sovereignty shouldn't make us anxious. It should actually make us rejoice. Because for one thing, it means that you don't have to worry about your past. You might have done terribly evil things in your past. You might have had terrible evil done to you. Our society often talks in those situations about people ruining others' lives. But I think that's actually because we've lost the language of evil as a society. Because if you know God and his sovereign power and love, then you know that while people are capable of appalling evil, no one can ruin God. It's simply not within their power. It's not as if God started you out on plan A. He had this super duper plan for your life. It's like, oh, this is going to be a river. But then, you know, you chose the wrong units in high school. And he kind of had to bump you back to plan B. Like, oh, all right. Oh, well, 
And then you went out with the wrong person, and God was like, oh, nuts. Plan C. <laughs> and then someone assaulted you, and God had to scramble. And he was like, oh, that's really getting tough. I've got to come up with plan D. And so eventually you worked all the way down to plan Z, 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 Z. <laughs> and God is just sort of, oh, boy, gee, this is a tough one. If God is working all things for our good, then even the dumb or evil things that we've done or others have done to us, although they may have been intended by for evil by us or them, they are intended by God for our good. Who knows why? Maybe to have a deeper experience of how desperately wicked and foolish we are and our world is. Maybe to help us realise how desperately we need Jesus to bring forgiveness and set things right. The truth of this, we may not know the details of those, this side of eternity. In fact, it's entirely possible that we'll never know them. But we can become confident that what has happened and what will happen, will happen, God uses to make us more like his son. Same in the future. You worried that you might muck things up and miss God's plan for your life? Well, what would change if you really believed Romans 8 28? That God works all things for your good. What would life be like if you really believed that? If you knew it for sure? What happens to all that anxiety, the fear that you might stuff it up, that you might get it wrong? It just kind of disappears, doesn't it? Because try as they might. No one can ruin your life, not even you. Everything that is done will turn out to be for your glory. That must be tremendously frustrating to say. How frustrating! Everything that you do, you finally manage to knock off the Son of God, and it turns out that it brings about the salvation of the entire world. Oh, far out! What's it like going to do? for God to be our shepherd. If you love God, then God really does have a wonderful plan for your life. And neither you nor anyone else can muck it up. Which actually liberates us to live a life of joy and gratitude towards God, instead of a life of anxiety and fear. We can actually thank Him for the guarantee of His sovereignty, that He's guiding us with or without our knowledge. <coughs> We can give thanks in all circumstances. Not necessarily for all circumstances. Sure, Brett and Kat don't thank God that they can't preach the gospel in the country they used to be. That must be tremendously frustrating. But they can thank God that he is using this for their glory in some way. Even if they can't see right now exactly what it is. And we can pray that God will help us to live a life of courage and confidence, trusting in his sovereignty. After all, we're a people who have had our robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, who bear his seal on our foreheads, who will stand before him pure and blameless on the last day. We're actually indestructible. So, life isn't something that we need to be anxious about. Instead, life is actually freed up to become an adventure. We can take risks that others would never dream of. We can happily give up our lives to go and live overseas, in difficult places, to preach the gospel. Who in their right mind would do that? Who, who would throw away all the joys and privileges of living in Perth to go somewhere like Morocco or East Asia? Well, someone who knows that God's in control, that he's working all things for their good. You can actually give up the career that your parents have dreamed of. You can give up the spouse that your parents have dreamed of you having. And the grandkids. It will horrify your parents. <laughs> I might do. Because they think you're throwing your life away. But they're wrong. Because as God's people, we are indestructible. Whatever happens, we're safe. Because God is guiding our lives. I mean, what is the worst that can happen to you? Presumably, it's that you get killed and you end up with what, the other believers under the altar, safe in heaven with Jesus, waiting for his return. 
Why not does the same to that? That's all right. We don't have to be anxious. We can trust God's sovereign control. But what about the conscious instruction side? How does God actually tell us what he wants us to do? Well, here is my third proposition. I'll leave it to Sean. There we go. My third proposition is that God can use many and various ways to guide us, that is, to reveal his will to us. We've seen some of that in the Bible already over in my seat, haven't we? That God has guided people, revealed his will to them in some pretty amazing and sometimes fairly bizarre ways. Now, here's, here's a highlights package. So, Numbers 22, a Balaam is spoken to by a donkey. His donkey tells him what to do. Very strange. But there it is. Daniel 5. Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, is holding a feast, and suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. Now that would have gotten your attention, wouldn't it? And it's guidance. God was guiding Belshazzar, telling him what was going to happen. Or Exodus 13. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. That's clearly guidance. Or by an angel, Acts 8.26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's plainly conscious instruction, isn't it? Conscious guidance. Acts 16, verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. When God wants to guide people, he's not exactly strapped for options, is he? He's got plenty of different ways. He's entirely capable of using all those means and more to guide us. So the critical question is not, how could God guide us? How is he capable of guiding us? Capable of guiding us any way he wants. The question is, how has God promised to guide Because it isn't actually faith to expect God to do something that he hasn't promised to do. It's just presumption. It'd be like me turning up at your place one night, knocking on the door and saying, G'day, I've come for dinner. After all, I know that you are capable of feeding me uh, in any number of ways, and uh, I know that you're very kind, and it would certainly make life a lot easier for me if you just fed me now, so um, let's go. Now I have every confidence in your ability to do what I ask. But if you haven't actually promised to give me dinner, if you haven't sort of invited me over, it does seem a little presumptuous, doesn't it? Insisting that you do what I want when I want, even though you've never promised to do it. It's the same with God, isn't it? So what has God promised to do? How has God promised to guide us? Well, Proposition 4. God promises to use the Bible and His Spirit to guide us, and He does not promise to use anything else. Now, first half, that's easy to demonstrate, and I'll try and do that in a moment. The second half is a little hard to prove, because it's trying to prove a negative. But when I go through the Bible looking for where God might promise to guide us with something other than the Bible and the Spirit, can't find it. Now it's possible that I'm wrong. It's possible that I tuned out the critical passage in Zephaniah and missed that specific verse where he promises to do it some other way, but I haven't seen it. I can't see anywhere in the Bible that God promises to use anything but the Bible and the Spirit to guide us. Come with me to 2 Timothy 3.15, for example. Timothy 3.15. 2 Timothy 3.15. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Oh, that's 16, sorry, 3.16. What are teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training? 
Well, they're actually relevant sometimes. Old assignment, old scripture is useful for God. But more than that, have a look at verse 17. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need to be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you need more than the Bible to be thoroughly equipped for every good work? Look at what it says. No. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible thoroughly equips you. So that must mean the Bible is sufficiently detailed to equip you for every good work, that it's sufficiently personal to equip you for every good work. The Bible is actually God speaking to me, regardless of whether it pierces my heart and convicts me or it puts me to sleep. It's still God speaking to me. It's still God guiding, thoroughly equipping me for every good work. But you might say, but hang on, ben, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, who is the Holy Spirit? The Spirit is one person of the Trinity, isn't he? Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit is God. So saying that the God guides by His Spirit is just another way of saying that God guides, which is not very helpful. But you know, Spirit sounds kind of mystical and spooky. What does the Bible say about how the Spirit guides? Well, Ephesians 6.17 gives us a clue. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is, the weapon that we're given, that the Spirit uses in our battle against evil, is what? A still small voice? A sense of peace? A prophet? Science? No, it's the Word of God. The message of the Gospel we find in the Scriptures, wielded by the Spirit to cut us to the heart. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Christians are led by the Spirit of God, he says. But what does that mean, to be led by the Spirit? What sort of experience is it? Is it, is it tingles? Is it particular impressions or an audible voice? Or what actually Paul tells us? Look at verse 13 there. What is he saying? He's saying that if you, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, then you are being led by the Spirit of God. And therefore, you are a child of God. Therefore, you will live. In other words, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you are led by the Spirit. So when are you being led by the Spirit? Well, all the time, I hope. Whenever you're putting to death and instead to the body, when you saw the queue for dinner last night and you, you desperately wanted to jump to the front, and you thought, no, I won't do that because that's not what Jesus would do. Well, you were being led by the Spirit. You were guided by God. You may not have even realised it. It's totally supernatural. That's not what you would naturally do. But is it spooky? No. It's just the kind of thing that you do when you have the Spirit. And He's transforming you to be like Jesus. Conforming you to the likeness of God's Son. Being led by the Spirit is not really about giving me extra information. It's not God going, Ben, Ben, go and sit next to that guy over there. No, it's about God working in you to live in light of the gospel. Hey, that guy's sitting on his own at lunch. Maybe I should go and sit with him. Maybe that'd be a good way of loving you. That's God's spirit leading. God guides by his word and his spirit. 
That's where he promises to guide. He doesn't promise anything else. In fact, he warns against alternatives. One alternative that he warns against is the occult. So Deuteronomy 18 verse 10, it says, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who's a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. All that occult stuff, all those other ways of trying to tap into the spiritual realm and work out what's going on. God says, don't get involved. They're demonic. Trust God. Trust him in your future. Jesus warns us in Mark chapter 7 against tradition, being guided by that. In the confrontation with the Pharisees, he says, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are the rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. So the Pharisees are just guided by their own traditions instead of the commands of God. Or Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. There are ways of being guided, but it's just about human traditions, about rules and regulations, about what you can or can't eat, whether you can or can't drink alcohol, when you should have your day off. People put them forward as though they're God's authoritative word, but they're not. They're just human traditions. Paul also warns us against people who carry on about visions as being guidance from God. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen in his unspiritual mind, puffs him up with idle notions. It seems to me that much of what we get taught about guidance is actually just based on human tradition and a sort of pseudo-spirituality, rather than on what God actually says, on what he actually promises. I've read a few books on guidance in preparation for NYC, and quite a number of them really just rely on nothing more than anecdotes. Pastor such and such had a dream that someone in their congregation was committing adultery, and when he confronted them about it, it turned out to be true. Now, don't get me wrong, every part of that may be absolutely true. It may absolutely have happened. God is able to use anything to guidance. The problem is that when those things are put forward as normative. This is what's supposed to happen. This is what you should be expecting. If it's not happening to you, you're doing something wrong. Your relationship with God is not what it ought to be. Just because it happened to someone else doesn't mean God's promised it will always happen. Nor does it mean that you need it to happen. The Bible is actually sufficient guidance. It gives us enough to please God. And actually, pleasing God is all that matters. So to sum it up, there's an almost infinite variety of ways that God could guide us. So the critical question is not how could God guide, but how does he promise to guide? Because expecting anything else is just presumptuous. It's not that God can't guide by all those ways, or that he promises never to guide by those ways. I mean, if you're eating lunch today and you see a giant hand writing on the wall and it says, go to East Asia and preach the gospel, well then, maybe take that seriously. Although you might like to check with the person next to you if they saw it as well. But if you get some sort of vague impression or a thought just pops into your head, then maybe be a little cautious. After all, if God wants you to do something, if he wants you to go back to Asia and preach the gospel, why do we communicate in such a vague and ambiguous way? Let's not read into things something that isn't there. If we expect the wrong thing, we're going to get either paralysed, waiting for it to happen, wondering why it's not happening, or we'll read into stuff that isn't actually there. We need to know what to expect from God. 
And God promises to guide us through his word, applied to our hearts by his spirit. Or to put it another way, guidance equals obedience. God tells us what he wants us to do in his word. We looked at God's promise to guide in Psalm 25 before, uh, and this is what it says. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. Do you know God guides? Well, by teaching us the demands of his covenant, his scriptures. Applying that to our hearts is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. But it's not mystical, it's not spooky. Now, that still leaves lots of issues, doesn't it? I mean, especially since the Bible doesn't seem to answer all the questions that I have. I mean, should I marry? If so, who should I marry? What degree should I study? What job should I go for? It just doesn't seem to tell me. But what it does tell you is that if you're a Christian, you can be confident of God's guidance. He's using everything to guide you. He's working all things for your good. The Lord is your shepherd. Now, there may be things that happen to you or that have happened to you that you don't understand. You don't know why God might have brought that particular thing into your life. You may never know. But if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, well, then you can be confident that he's working all things for your good. And if he's given his promise to guide us by his word and spirit, well, then you can be confident that it contains everything you need for a life of godliness. There's absolute security in having God as your shepherd. You can live a life of joy and confidence in him with the freedom to make decisions in the knowledge that God is in control. Total control. And life is an adventure of serving you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in control of all things and that we are safe and secure with you. Lord, help us to rejoice in that. Help us to trust in your sovereign guidance and help us to listen to your word. We pray that your spirit would apply it to our hearts, that we might be transformed, that you might guide us to become more and more like the Lord Jesus. It is so. Amen.